Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Thank you, David. Love you, too. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, I know this slide is a bit fuzzy, but I would agree with that. And I think that most people here would too. Sadly, this fairy sign was hanging in the pavilion of Jonestown, Guyana where it was found on November 17, 1978, where 900 men, women, and children were found dead as victims of cult leader Jim Jones. Certainly, this sign hung there in vain. This morning, we're going to examine this quote in action in both our covenant Parsha and in our new covenant Parsha. Our covenant Parsha ties up the Joseph story in Genesis. Certainly Joseph is our hero, but there are some characters that I believe really deserve a closer look. Characters that kind of get absorbed because Joseph, of course, is center stage. Although it is right that we revere our patriarchs and matriarchs, just as congregational leader just said, and, and disclaimer, I am not here to be disrespectful to them. I'm not here to poke fun at them. I'm not here to throw them under the bus. And as I've said from this beam before, to be a 48-year-old middle-aged man, I'm still quite agile. I can dodge shoes, tomatoes, and eggs. The pink elephant, though, is that these were not the greatest family men. And it's explicit in Torah that the favoritism that they showed in between their sons and their wives wreaked absolute havoc on their families. And we can all raise our hands and say, yeah, but, all we want. Yeah, but, this was normal clan living at the time. Yeah, but, maybe at that time they didn't really see it that way. And I would say, yeah, but, again, the Torah is also very, very clear about the turmoil that the favoritism caused these families. So let's start and see what the Torah has to say. Let's see how the patriarchs, as wonderful and faithful as they were to the Lord, they certainly did not remember the favoritism in their own families growing up. And thus, they were condemned to repeat it. Now, This part I'm going to go through relatively quickly because it's all background information. 
Pardon me. Isaac and Rebekah, of course, had Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first. Jacob was born second, grabbing his brother's heel on the way out. Isaac favored Esau. Rebekah favored Jacob. And we know the story. Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a pot of stew. Rebekah helps Jacob fool Isaac, who by this time was old and feeble, into blessing Jacob instead of Esau. Isaac blesses Jacob with a blessing that was originally meant for the oldest Esau. This, of course, infuriates Esau, who wants revenge upon Jacob. Rebekah sends Jacob to escape, to live with her brother Laban in order to escape Esau's wrath. Laban has two daughters, and it's obvious from the way that these that he has named his two daughters, that there is blatant favoritism in Laban's family as well. The oldest daughter is named Leah. The Torah describes her as having dull eyes, and indeed her name in Hebrew means worn out. We would say today something like lackluster or ain't nothing special. The youngest daughter is named Rachel, and she is described as beautiful. Her name means you in Hebrew, not you as in you yucky, but you as in female sheep. Now that does not sound particularly flattering to us today, but when your family are shepherds, as Laban's family was, that's about the most prized name you could have, because if you raise sheep, what's the natural thing to do? You take the strongest, most healthiest males, and you mate them with the strongest, most healthiest females to have the strongest, healthiest flock. And the rest of them, you eat, or you milk, or you sell them off. So to be named you is to be named the pick of the litter, the best of the best. So here's Laban welcoming Jacob, and he says, Jacob, Welcome, son of my sister Rebecca. Meet my youngest daughter, pick of the litter, best of the best. And her older sister, yeah, I guess you could do worse. So obvious favoritism going on in Laban's family as well. And we know the story. Jacob is in love with Rachel and agreed to work seven years in order to marry her. But then Laban deceives the deceiver. Laban gives Jacob Leah instead of Rachel and weasels another seven years of work out of Jacob, finally giving Jacob Rachel. The Torah says explicitly, it's in black and white, that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Again, favoritism within the household of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. And as we are going to see, Jacob's uh, failure to learn from the past favoritism in his own life condemns him to repeat it in his own family. Here is a chart. Slide up here. Here is a chart of this reality TV show gone crazy on steroids up here that is Jacob's family. We have Jacob who loves Rachel. Now, Rachel is barren. We have Leah, who Jacob doesn't love, but yet Leah is as fertile as a rabbit. Leah, uh-huh, Leah bears Jacob four sons right off the bat. 
And you can tell by what Leah names these boys that she knows she's unloved. And this depresses her incredibly. She agonizes over how lonely she is and how she wants her husband to love her. And her agony is reflected in what she names these boys. Her first son, she names Reuben, which means behold a son. But in this context, it's like she's saying, Jacob, look, I bore you your first son. Now, certainly I've earned your love now, haven't I? The first son of the family is supposed to receive all of the privileges and is usually the favorite, but not to Jacob, not here. Leah tries again and again and again to win Jacob's affection. She has son number two, Simeon, from the root Shem, as in Shema. In this context, the Lord has heard that I was unloved and has given me another son so that you might love me, Jacob. But again, this does not move Jacob whatsoever. She has son number three, who she names Levi, kind of a play on words. Levi means to join, and it also means my heart. In this context, I've borne Jacob another son, another son. Certainly now he'll join his heart to me. And of course, Jacob is just as indifferent as ever. Pardon me. Leah gets pregnant again and has a fourth son who she names Judah, Yehuda. We praise the Lord here at Tikvat with a derivation of this name. Hodu Adonai Kitov. Give thanks to the Lord, he is good. But with that yud on the beginning, it means he will give thanks. Certainly now he, my husband, will give thanks for me because I've borne him forth sons. Did it work? It did not. At this point in the narrative, that although we see that Rachel is the most beautiful sister, the favored sister, the most beautiful wife, the most loved wife, we see here exactly how high maintenance and spiteful she is and how trifling she is to live with. Rachel, for her part, is incredibly envious of how her sister can have a son at the drop of a hat. And Rachel's main contribution to the household is following her husband around, screaming after him. Check it out for yourself. Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. Give me children or I'll die. Give me children or I'll die. Rachel gives her maid Bilhah. To Jacob, so legally any son between Jacob and Bilhah would legally be Rachel's son. So Bilhah and Jacob have a son whom Rachel names Dan, which literally means judge. But in this context, it's like Rachel saying to Leah, I've taken you to court and I've sued and I've won the settlement. Therefore, I've won back my proper position as the most important wife in this setup. So pretty spiteful against Leah. And apparently Rachel really enjoyed this newfound feeling of superiority and rubs Leah's nose in it a little bit more by naming Bilhah's second son with Jacob, Naphtali, which means to struggle or to wrestle. Rachel is declaring 
I have wrestled with my sister, and I have come out on top. Instead of Naphtali, Rachel should have just gone ahead and named this kid in your face, Leah. Well, Leah, as us Jews say, is not at all having it. She turns to her Miss Ladida, younger sister Rachel, and says, So it's like that, is it? I happen to have a maidservant of my own self and two can play at this game. Leah's maidservant, Zilpha, bears two sons for Jacob, Gad and Asher, which means luck and fortune, respectively, and puts it back in Rachel's face as if to say, not only can I bear children, but my maidservant can too, and we can do it better and more often. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, Rachie Bubby. And so you see this nastiness that Jacob's favoritism brings into his own household. Leah bears Jacob two more sons and a daughter, Issachar, Zebulon, and Dinah. Finally, after all this, Rachel, Jacob's favorite and loved wife, bears Jacob his two favorite and loved sons, Joseph, which means added from unto me. He might as well have just called this kid true flesh of my flesh. And the rest of you are basically, basically rotted gefilte fish. And the youngest, Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And he might as well have just named him my crown jewel or apple of my eye, as we say nowadays. In all the names of these wives and boys is reflected the ugliness of favoritism within this family. One would think that Jacob, of all people, who had been on the receiving end of favoritism himself from Isaac and Rebekah, would have been able to recognize and therefore prevent showing favoritism within his own family. After all, this man was given the blessing of reconciliation with his brother Esau, the very damage caused by that favoritism. This was a man who dreamed of angels ascending and descending to heaven. This man wrestled with the Almighty and was given a new name, Israel, by Hashem himself. But yet it seems he was unable to integrate these particular blessings into his own soul. Indeed, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Pardon me again. Let's all together just try to imagine what it must have been like for the Jan Brady of the family, the middle child, Judah. Talk about getting lost in the madness. You have three older brothers whose names reflect the fact that your father really could care less whether your mother was there or not. 
and you watch her being neglected, and you and your brothers are kind of treated like afterthoughts every day. The tension in that household between your mother and your stepmother, are it's as thick as London fog. And all the while, your father, who should be providing an example in that house, is not doing anything to relieve the tension, and in fact is doing the best he can to hide from his favored loved wife, who is constantly chasing him around like a banshee, screaming, give me children or I'll die. Your father is probably not giving you or your brothers too many kind words or too much affection or even a really nice story. Instead, he's showering it on these two youngest ones by screaming stepmom. And to add insult to an already broken heart, one day your father comes home ecstatic in the best mood you've seen him in in years with the most beautiful striped coat you've ever seen in your life. And he passes it right over your head without even looking in your direction and hands it to your youngest spoiled brat of a brother who recently has been bragging about how you are going to bow to him. Certainly, if any kid in the world had every reason to hate, it was Judah, son of Jacob. But that's not the end of the story. The brothers, of course, become fed up with Jacob, uh, with Joseph, rather. The brothers become fed up with Joseph. They sell him into slavery. They trick Jacob into smearing goat's blood on this beautifully striped coat. Joseph ends up in Egypt and rises through the ranks due to his God-given ability to interpret dreams and becomes royal vizier in charge of grain storage through a seven-year period of bounty. When a seven-year famine hits, Egypt has already uh, has enough grain stored out to ration out. Jacob, who is now called Israel, sent all of his sons, with the exception of Benjamin, ouch, thanks dad, to Egypt to buy grain again. The brothers approach Joseph, whom they don't recognize, to buy grain. Joseph, however, does recognize his brothers and inquires about the well-being of his father and mother, as well as his youngest brother, Benjamin. His brothers inform Joseph that the family is very much alive and well. Joseph says to his brothers, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you grain to take back home to your family, but I'm going to keep your brother Simeon here with me. And in exchange, I want you to please bring me back Benjamin. That way, I'll know that you guys aren't some kind of spies. So the brothers go back home and they tell Israel that they have to bring back Benjamin with them to this, so that this Egyptian vizier, so that they're not suspected of being spies, and then we'll bring Simeon back home. Israel's response, pretty, well, just listen to yourself. Listen for yourself. Israel's response was, must you make me childless? Pretty awful thing to say. Um, here he has all these sons standing in front of him, but since his favorite is gone, 
Israel says in front of his, all, his other sons that because J Benjamin is going, to go, is going to be gone, he's going to be childless. Israel continues, Joseph, my other favorite, is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin away. It's almost like Israel is saying, my one favorite child by my favorite wife, Joseph, is gone. Tough luck that Simeon's over there, but I'm certainly not going to exchange Simeon by a wife I don't love for my crown jewel apple of my eye, Benjamin, my favorite son by a wife I do love. Benjamin shall not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead. If some disaster should befall him on the journey, it would send my white head down to Sheol in grief. And as I said, this, of course, had to sting all of the other brothers. Unfortunately, who probably at this point in their lives are quite used to being treated like non-entities within their own family. But then something unexpected happens. Of all the brothers, Judah, the lost in the madness middle child who has absolute, absolutely no reason whatsoever to do anything for his father, much less his little brother Benjamin, steps forward. And he says to his father, let Benjamin go with me so that we may get on our way. If our family is not to starve to death, I myself will serve as a guarantee for him. You can hold me personally responsible for Benjamin. If I fail to bring him back, I will bear the blame before you forever. I'm paraphrasing from Genesis 44. Judah arrived in Egypt again, and he stood before Joseph and said to Joseph, I beg you, my Lord, let your servant, me, appeal to you. Do not become angry with me because you are equal to Pharaoh. I, your servant, have guaranteed this boy's safety by saying to my father, if I fail to bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you forever. So now let me, your servant, remain in place of the boy as a slave to you, my Lord, Joseph. Let the boy go back to his brothers because I could never, never go back to my father if the boy was not with me because I could never bear to see the anguish that would overcome my father. Regardless of how he has treated me and my mother and my brothers, I nonetheless could never bear to watch my father grieve himself to death even over a brother who's probably made my life pretty miserable. But that doesn't matter, because in this situation, it's not all about me. Judah was the only one who stepped up to the plate and for the well-being of his entire family, acted selflessly and with compassion. It was around this time that Joseph was moved and revealed to his brother who he was and threw his arms around his brothers and kissed them and wept. 
and told them to bring their father and brother Benjamin and all the family to Egypt. Approximately 700 years before the birth of Yeshua, the Assyrian Empire invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and basically wiped it off the map. The ten northern tribes were exiled and were never heard from again and are known today as the ten lost tribes of Israel. The Assyrian Empire was defeated before they had the opportunity to invade the southern kingdom, where two tribes still remained, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah. And it is no coincidence to me, brothers and sisters, that Messiah Yeshua, who laid down his life to us, for us, he didn't deserve it at all, is descended from the tribe of Judah. Our Brit HaChadashah Parsha is at the end of Matthew chapter 5. I would like to call our attention to the fact, brothers and sisters, that the Sermon on the Mount was not delivered to those with a deep theological background. It was not delivered to seminary students. The Sermon on the Mount was delivered to broken, shattered people just trying to get by, to desperate people longing for rest and peace, living under Roman occupation with absolutely minimal to no civil rights whatsoever. Yeshua himself was from Nazareth. Very significant. A little village in the Galilee, Nazareth, which is very significant because the Galilee, you see, was the most fertile section of Jewish territory and the more productive, the more targeted by Roman taxation. Yeshua would grow up with constant, first-hand, experience of intimidation and corruption to himself and to his family members by non-regulated and poorly disciplined Roman soldiers. All throughout his life, Yeshua no doubt grew up hearing stories of a tax revolt that grew, that sprang up four miles from Nazareth around the year he was born. The Romans, of course, flattened this rebellion and crucified 2,000 of its participants and left them on their crosses to rot 
as a warning to anyone who dare rebel against the might of Rome. Certainly, Yeshua and all of his neighbors had cousins, uncles, friends that were victims of this tragedy. And if anyone, anywhere, grew up with every reason to hate, it was Yeshua of Nazareth. But yet, Yeshua exhorts this broken and victimized people, love your enemies, do good to those, and pray for those who persecute you. Brothers and sisters, you do not see this exhortation in any other faith's sacred writings, nor in any of the writings of the Greek philosophers. The only things that comes close is our exhortation in Leviticus to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we do not have the pairing of two such opposite words. Love. Enemy. Pray. Persecute. This is entirely 100,000% unique to Messiah Yeshua. The Sermon on the Mount has been interpreted a myriad of different ways throughout history. In the Middle Ages and during the Reformation, it was believed that Yeshua told us this to show us what horrible sinners we are, to beat us over the head with the Bible, so to speak. But this is not the reason that Yeshua gives us in our Parsha today. There's a very modern school of thought that sees Yeshua only, and let me be, let me be very clear here, okay, that sees Yeshua only as an apocalyptic prophet and nothing else. In other words, everything, and in this school of thought, everything, that Yeshua does and says is because he believes that the end of the world is immediate. So it's like, okay, let me give you an example. It's like, therefore, if I believe that the world is going to end in, let's say, two hours, well, of course I can be perfect for two hours. Sure. I can love my enemies for two hours. Sure. If someone slaps me on one cheek, sure, I can let them slap me on the other cheek for two hours. Why not? And yes, Yeshua is very interested in the end times. There are other places in Matthew and the other Gospels. He's quite clear about the end times. But here in our Parsha today, Yeshua gives a different reason. Messiah says... Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the bad and the good. He causes his reign to fall on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. In other words, God's love is all-encompassing. God's love is whole. 
Yeshua says, be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. And let me relax you right now, beloved. This is not some crazy modern American idea of perfectionism. I've got to do everything right 100% of the time. I've got to fake being in a good mood 100% of the time in order to win God's favor. Do you know what word Yeshua uses? Guess what word in Hebrew Yeshua uses? Shlemim. Shlemim from the word Shalom. Be at peace. Be whole. Let your love be all-encompassing. Be complete. Shalom, as your Father in heaven is. Shalom. See the bigger picture. Now let me tell you the best part. In this, brothers and sisters, Yeshua is telling us something wonderful about ourselves. Yeshua is inviting us through him, through him. He's inviting us to embrace the fact that our very nature is that we were born in the image of a pure, whole, and loving God. And with him... By his chesed, by his grace, even when it seems that the entire world is against us, we can embrace that nature and be the best versions of ourselves. Just like Judah in front of Joseph. It's true. It's true. It can be said that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. But to those of us here, to those of us listening by podcast, those of us who know Yeshua and therefore know that we were born in the image of the God of Shalom, maybe, just maybe, we can rewrite that to those of us who can take lessons from the past, can also take the hand of Messiah, Yeshua, and allow him to guide us into a future of shalom in him. Thank you for listening. Shabbat shalom.